Today on Ag News Daily. It's uh, imperative that people look far enough ahead to understand what's uh, unfolding here, and hopefully uh, they'll pay attention and maybe give uh, NextGen uh, a chance. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is Madison Honkamp here reporting from the Ag News Daily podcast. And today I am joined by Mike Pearson and Delaney Howell. And, you know, guys, what is really jumping out at you today? Oh, boy, that is a great question, Madison. (laughs) I tell you what, there's a lot of things jumping out. The world of agriculture continues to move forward, although I got to say we did, uh, since it is Thursday, we did have an export report out today that I think is worth noting. China stepped into the market and bought 39,000 tons of U.S. pork. Hmm. African swine fever, there you go. Exactly, exactly. So it's um, in total, uh, total pork sales for this week were 54,700 tons, 18% more than the week previous, and quite a bit higher than the four-week average. China was, of course, the biggest buyer, followed by Mexico and Canada. Um, You know, yeah, they are... They're stepping up their purchases. It, It still isn't enough if they're going to lose, you know, 25 to 50% of their hog herd, but yeah, it's nice to see. Well, speaking of Chinese pork, we know Smithfield is owned by a Chinese company, and we saw Wire story reports come out, I think yesterday, stating that Smithfield Foods is looking to start selling and buying Brazilian corn specifically buying Brazilian corn, they say they're preparing ahead because of all the wet weather states have had and reduced plantings. They are nervous that they're not going to be able to get their corn buys made through the normal corn belt shipments. And they said, we're just finding a destination for Brazil corn and supplying those who know there will be a shortage just being faster and nothing else were the comments that they apparently gave to reporters or gave publicly. They have ordered somewhere between 5 and 10 shipments from Brazil and are expected to load those onto ships between September to January, which would coincide with maybe when we see some shortage in domestic corn. Yeah, and you know what? It's interesting you bring that up, Delaney. I was talking to a friend of ours, a follower on Twitter and an avid listener of the podcast. I won't I won't name his name. I, I don't know how public this is. You know, might have been off the record, but uh, according to him, there have been several or at least a few large corn consumers and users who have inquired on what it would take to barge corn from Brazil or Argentina up the Mississippi and the Ohio waterways just because they are concerned, especially you get over there in eastern or excuse me, western Ohio, eastern Indiana, the places that are literally submerged. They're just not going to have a corn mm. crop. I mean, if we continue to see wet weather, which I think we're starting to see some of that turnaround now finally, but I guess maybe if we started to see domestic prices really surge, I don't know, maybe the cost of Brazilian soybeans would make sense even with transportation calculated in. Excuse me, mm-hmm. Brazilian yeah. corn, not soybeans, but. Right. That's that's the, uh, it's if you're going to manage risk, that's a risk that uh, you ought to be prepared for, especially if you're going to be in one of those corn deficit areas like eastern Indiana, parts of Ohio, Illinois, and, you know, perhaps even eastern Nebraska, although now you're barging up the Missouri and you know, it's closed and flooding, you know, there's a lot of. A lot of ifs, ands, and buts, of course, go into all hmm. of that. But, you know, certainly I don't think it's shocking that uh, these companies are looking for ways to manage some of that corn accessibility risk. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting.
It is. Well, Madison, what's jumping out at you today? Um, just kind of one headline. It's a little bit smaller, but I saw it today. Um, and it's how the tariffs are affecting U- the U.S. beef supply. So uh, these tariffs that are obviously on imports for Mexican goods, um, it's they're kind of overlooking another aspect um, that they do, especially within beef in the southern states along the border. And it's through migration. So again, this was kind of a question I kind of want to throw out there to our listeners to see if they can maybe if they understand it a little bit better than I do, but basically more than 1 million cattle exported by Mexico across the border each year ultimately become part of the U.S. beef supply. And these tariffs are going to affect even... So what I'm understanding... Sorry, I'm a little tongue-tied. That even if it is labeled U.S. beef it could still have that kind of that tax on it as though it were coming from Mexico, but it's from a U.S. meat producer or processor um, more along the lines of uh, like the ranches kind of straddling that border and um, those cattle are kind of going in between both countries. Sure. Or a ranch down in New Mexico wherever bought some uh, some feeder cattle from Mexico mm-hmm. and brought them across the border. Now they're going to get hit with the tax. And then, yeah, exactly. yeah, absolutely. I mean, these things definitely have some far-reaching impacts for sure. Yeah, it was just one small thing that I w- just kind of almost took me aback because I it wasn't really something that I ever thought about. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, it does sound like with the tariffs with Mexico are still on schedule, as Delaney talked about yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. June 10th, still looking at that. Mexican and U.S. officials had their uh, their second day of chatting today. And um, basically, they said that uh, we want uh, Vice President Mike Pence said that uh, the White House wants Mexico to commit harder to working to combat illegal immigration. He said in a quote, we welcome the efforts of the Mexican officials to offer solutions to the crisis at our southern border. But we need Mexico to do more. That was Vice President Pence this morning. So as of now, tariffs are still scheduled to go into effect with all of the market distorting impacts that would have. Yes. And another thing that we were unsure of if it could be a market distortion or not is PP, Prevent Plant, is that going to be included in the assistance package? Is it not? How does it work in, of course, to the new trade assistance or excuse me, disaster assistance package. So it sounds like USDA top lawyers have confirmed that unplanted crop acreage will be ineligible for trade assistance packages under the market facilitation program. However, they are working or that is basically the thought process behind why they included it in the latest disaster uh, supplemental disaster bill and Senator John Hooven was quoted in AgriPulse today saying that this was essentially a backdoor measure and um, he said we can't help out prevent plant acres under the trade assistance package but that's why it's in this disaster supplemental bill so it does sound like even if you take prevent plant you will still get some disaster aid money. We don't really know how that's going to work out yet. We don't know as well how the assistance package calculations are going to be figured up, but it does sound like both of those two groups of people will get some sort of 
disbursement uh, this growing season. Kind of a wait and see game there, as always, when it comes to things coming from good old Uncle Sam. But there's another wait and see game going on, and it's something I've heard about. I've got some friends in the food industry, and we've been talking about this off and on. I didn't realize it was such a hot topic, but Writers has a report that Beyond Meat, the fake meat uh, plant burger, is really making some heavy swings to get itself sold in the meat case right alongside actual meat. And so far, most grocery stores tend to be resisting it, but they're really wondering how, how consumers are going to react. And uh, some of them say, you know, we don't want to put Beyond Meat in the meat case because that would confuse shoppers. Others say, you know, we need to be putting them head to head because they are meat alternates and, you know, consumers want to see it next to the meat. And listeners, we'd love to get your thoughts. This is, of course, a topic that gets me all fired up. Um, Beyond Meat, right in the name, it tells you it isn't meat. It shouldn't be in the meat case. That's the way I read it. If it's Beyond Meat, then it is different from meat and shouldn't be in the meat case. That's how I see it. Well, isn't there like a separate aisle almost for like those kind of substitutes typically? Yes. So that is something that one of the grocery stores cited, this natural grocers. Um, they said they place Beyond Meat in a refrigerated section with other alternative proteins like tofu and you know, whatever that kind of stuff is and not in the meat case because they're worried about confusion. So yeah, stores. And I think when you get out into the Midwest, most of the stores I've seen carry this kind of fruit, fruit stuff in, you know, generally we we don't want to see that kind of stuff in the meat case. So it's going to be interesting. Mm -hmm. This is going to be a battle that will be raging as Impossible Foods moves into the market and eventually those other uh, uh, lab-grown proteins are going to be uh, coming on too. Well, uh, one thing that we have finally seen the end of a battle, at least for now, is getting E15 year-round. A quick report here from our Roger Barry. So let's turn it over here to Bruce. There is a new administrator in charge of the Nebraska Ethanol Board. Roger Barry took the reins of the board on Friday. I got a chance to visit with Roger at their last board meeting on Friday in Grand Island, and I asked him what is going to be first on his agenda as the new administrator. Well, first is to uh, kind of get my feet under myself a little bit here. You know, we've uh, been going hot and heavy in the ethanol board. There's been a lot going on, um, as you're hearing in the news, all kinds of different things that are being worked on. But first, we're, we're going to just kind of get ourselves gelled together, and then we're going to take off and start figuring out how do we start moving more ethanol in the state of Nebraska. You've had a lot of experience here in the state of Nebraska with the Farm Bureau and with the Nebraska Corn Board, so you're very familiar with the ethanol industry. This is not new to you. No, no, the ethanol industry is not new at all. It goes back to even when I was farming. I was a big advocate of bringing E10 into our little community when I was farming at that time and and kept hounding the station to, to bring E10 in in there that was back in the days when we weren't using e10 yet so i've been an advocate for for ethanol for a long time the last few years with the corn board i've really drilled down 
and and learn so much about ethanol and the ethanol industry and just how good of a product it is. And and I'm, the the main thing that I've learned is how badly we have been lied to over the years from those who oppose ethanol to keep ethanol out of the markets. And I get it. It's it's taken away market share. Uh, they're going to fight, and, and they need to fight. But let's not lie about it as what we have seen and what I have learned as I drill down into it. So that's, that's the main thing I want people to know is don't believe the lies anymore. Ethanol is an absolutely fantastic product, and be open to learning about it. Remember the good old gasohol days? Yep, sure do. I, I actually drive a car. It's a 99 Oldsmobile that says right in there, do not use gasohol in this car. Well, I do use gasohol in that car and have for many, many years, and it's still running great. Come a long way in the ethanol business, and uh, one of the things that the ethanol business has been pushing for is E15. E15 is on the market for flex fuel vehicles, but now the announcement has come out from EPA that anybody 2001 and newer can use E15 year-round. That is 100% correct. It's an extremely exciting day because just today the EPA has come out with their rule saying that now E15 can be sold year-round at retailers, which means the consumer is now going to be able to buy a gas that is less expensive, but better for their car all year round. And the the big thing is the consumer choice. You mentioned the consumer. Consumers can still buy regular gasoline at most places, and but now they have a choice, E10, E15, and they have, there's blender pumps. So it is a choice for the consumer. And I'm glad you brought that up because you're exactly right. E15 is not a mandate. E10 is a mandate. We do have to use E10 in our fuel because of uh, it goes back into history, into the, the writing of the renewable fuel standard. E15 is not a mandate, and a lot of people are going to tell everybody that because it's available year-round now, it means that we're mandating E15. No, it is an option for the consumer to save some money when they pull up into the fuel station. Another step in the future would possibly be E30. And I know uh, the Nebraska Ethanol Board, along with the University of Nebraska and some others, have started testing or will start testing E30 in state cars. Tell us about that. June 3rd is the kickoff date for that. We have permission from the EPA to run E30 in what we call legacy legacy vehicles. That means they're not a flex fuel vehicle. They're just the everyday car that, uh, that we drive up and down the roads every day. We're going to be burning E30 in, in those cars, those test cars. They're going to be closely monitored by engineers to see what are the effects on these vehicles. This, this test will go on for one year from June, June 3rd to June 3rd of uh, next year, and uh, that's when we'll have the results out. And what this is going to do is really help bring about uh, regulations or guidelines from EPA as we continue to evolve in our uh, technologies with our automobiles. Testing has shown it at university levels that, that E30 is fine and, and possibly gives better mileage, and I think that's what you're going to try to validate with this study. Right. One of the things we've been working on with autos on through an organization called the Ag Auto Ethanol Working Group for years is developing engines that actually utilize the octane that ethanol has. Because that's, that's the value of ethanol is its octane. It's extremely high octane. So as you increase the, the compression ratio in the cylinders of cars, you increase the efficiencies. But you have to increase octane of the fuel or else it will knock. Remember the old cars when it would, they'd go up a hill and they'd start knocking? That's exactly what it's doing. It needs octane in order to, to not do that knocking part on it. Ethanol provides that octane, and E30 is that sweet spot 
between E25 and E30 is that sweet spot in, in engine technologies in order to bring about those maximum efficiencies. If we can go to e, E30, is that going to help the air quality component? Immensely. You know, I've, I've been to several different places around the world. I was sitting in Brazil in uh, Rio de Janeiro one day, and I was in a fairly high-rise building, and this is a huge city, keep in mind. Looking out, this bu- looking out the windows of this, this high-rise building, the skies were clear, even clearer than what we have here at home. And the reason why is because they use a minimum of 27% ethanol in Brazil. A lot of their cars run on 100% ethanol. In, in Brazil, it's, it has a huge impact on clearing our air. And who doesn't want cleaner air to breathe? I know I sure do. That's Roger Berry. He's the newly installed administrator of the Nebraska Ethanol Board. And I'm Bruce Gorder for Ag News Daily. All right. Well, hey, thanks, Bruce, for that report. Always enjoy getting the update there in the ethanol world. And I tell you what, Ethanol is one of those things that a lot of folks are using to power their vehicles, and rightfully so. I use it. I use E15 in my 78 Lincoln because it works. But I tell you what, a lot of other folks like to use other fuels. When it comes to using other fuels, how you manage your motor, how you deal with you know, making sure everything is running is hugely important. And we have a fantastic resource, the Hot Rod Farmer who's got some updates for us on exactly what needs to be considered when you're considering a diesel tuner. The sentiment of a famous country song says it all. They can't be a girl too pretty or a car too fast or in our case, a diesel engine that is too powerful. The promise of added performance with a diesel tuner is easy to fall prey to. Welcome to the Hot Rod Farmer Minute. I am Ray Bohax from the Idle Chatter podcast found on the Global Ag Network. Before you invest in a diesel tuner, you need to understand how it works and its possible ramifications. The modern diesel engine replaced the pump line nozzle system with common rail electronic injectors and an ECU. The ECU can be recalibrated to alter the timing and length of the injection pulse along with the boost pressure. This is the source of the power gain. The calibration a diesel tuner employs is more aggressive than that fitted by the engine manufacturer. Engine power is produced by the pressure created during the combustion of the fuel. The higher the power, the more heat generated and the greater the cylinder pressure. Heat and pressure when excessive will end up hurting the engine. The logic of the engine manufacturer is to build an engine and transmission that can take more power than the tune provides. It is like building a truck that can carry more weight than it is rated for. It is the buffer for when it is overloaded. An aggressive high horsepower tune either diminishes or removes the safety barrier. A tune identified for towing offers the best of both worlds, better throttle response, increased power and fuel economy, while still being safe for the engine. If the truck has worked hard often, then I suggest keeping the stock calibration and just go up the hill a little bit slower. Why risk an expensive repair? Have a blessed day and I will catch you next week on Ag News Daily. All right. Well, hey, thank you, Ray. I always appreciate that I always learn something listening to him. You know, Madison, he's a fascinating, fascinating mm-hmm. guy with a wealth of information. Yes, he definitely is. I really enjoy those 
little snippets that he uh, is able that we are able to play for him. You bet. And folks, check him out on the Global Ag Network. He is uh, one of our other podcasts now on the network. We're excited to have him on board. Check out his library. If you've got questions about anything mechanical, Ray has probably put something out there that could help you address it. But speaking of addressing things, we've got to address these markets. And friends, our markets are brought to us by our pals over at the Zaner Group. Remember, you can get help this marketing season and next marketing season managing that marketing risk by getting in touch with our friends at Zaner. And uh, you can do that by giving them a shout at 312-277-0050 or by visiting them on the web at Zaner, Z-A-N-E-R.com and tell them you heard it on Ag News Daily. We've got mixed trade today in the grains. Corn and wheat higher, beans ah, a little little bit lower on the day. July corn was up five and three quarters at four twenty and a half. December new crop up five cents, finished at four thirty eight and a half. In soybeans, the July was down a penny at eight sixty eight and three quarters, with the November down two cents to finish at eight ninety five and a quarter. Looking at strong gains here in wheat, July Chicago wheat up nineteen and a quarter cents on the day, finished at five ten even. September up sixteen and a half, closed at five fourteen and a quarter. Jumping over to the livestock markets, mixed trade in cattle with the June live cattle contract down twenty five cents at one oh seven sixty. The August up twelve and a half to close at one oh four eighty. In feeder cattle, the August contract down 17.5 cents at 139.2750. The September down 10 to close at 139.60. And mixed trade as well in lean hogs. The June contract was down 47.50 at 79.37 and a half. The July up 7.5 cents, finished the day at 86.35. And of course, we can't forget about our friends in the dairy industry. Wow, yesterday's strength carried on today. June, uh, Class 3 milk up 10 cents at 16.22, with the July up 7, closing us out at 16.55. Now we're going to circle back to a conversation we had last week about succession planning. But today we're going to be talking about a farmer who has gone through the process, Mr. Glenn Milk. Well, to follow up with a conversation we had last week with Mike Downey of Next Generation Ag Advocates, we have none other than the farmer co-founder, Glenn Miller of Next Generation Ag Advocates, who was really the one who designed the Century Match program we discussed last week on the podcast. Glenn, first of all, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. So, Glenn... Obviously, you were kind of the brains behind this whole succession organization. Walk us through the struggle or the transition that you went through on your own operation of not having a successor or a plan in place for getting it on to the next generation. Okay, well, it it all started back in uh, 2015. Um, I had some unexpected uh, uh, health problems, and my doctor suggested that maybe I should uh, give up uh, 41 years of farming. And uh, my my son was not anxious to take over the farming operation. He had a different direction that he was going, so I basically uh, ended up with uh, no successor in place to uh, take over. And of course, I had anticipated on farming a number of years longer. So everything kind of hit the fan all at once. And, and I started looking at uh, some of the people that I had uh, uh, talked to previously that uh, expressed some interest in in uh, farming my operation, should anything ever uh, come up of that. And uh, I looked at the uh, uh, group of people, and, and uh, I had a 900-acre uh, operation that all of a sudden was looking for an operator, and 
the pool of uh, people that I considered uh, capable of taking over my operation was a whole lot smaller than I had uh, anticipated. And, and uh, I'm, I'm kind of a particular farmer. I uh, uh, have always uh, looked upon my uh, farm as, as kind of a, a child that, uh, you know, I curried for 40 years. And, and I wasn't anxious to farm that or allow that to be farmed by someone that didn't have the same kind of uh, concerns. And so um, in doing so, I was able to find an operator that uh, had a son also that was interested in farming as time went on. And, and so we talked and, and I was able to uh, find a successor. But in, in the whole process, I found that uh, the pool of people out there uh, was, was not as large as what uh, a lot of people would think, um, uh, especially with the kind of criteria that I had set uh, for that operator. And so I, I sat back and I got to thinking about all of the uh, uh, turnover that was going to be taking place in farmland operations and ownerships and that going forward over the next 10 to 15 years. And it became very evident to me that uh, uh, the pool of people capable of doing what uh, was going to need to be done was was going to actually get smaller. And as farms got larger, the ability for someone to take over a larger operation uh, got to become more and more, and more difficult. So uh, I um, contacted my friend Steve Bohr and we sat down and, and discussed it and looked at the reality of what uh, we thought was coming in the future and decided to start Next Generation Ag Advocates. So then were you able to use Next Generation to help you narrow down and whittle down your search to find a successor, or were they happening kind of in parallel? Well, actually, Next Generation came as a result of what I had to go through myself. So what I did was uh, prior to Next Gen actually coming into uh, uh, fruition, but uh, we uh, we saw the need, and uh, that's why we are um, uh, working next gen right now. So, Glenn, you obviously were kind of the brains behind the Century Match program, and we talked to Mike about it a little bit last week. But from your perspective, and you were obviously a farmer and helped transition that. How important is it to you to have something like this in the industry? Well, I always was a person that liked to look forward and, and look uh, into the future. Uh, I had quite a number of positions uh, that kind of uh, exemplified that uh, with the different organizations that I was involved with. And, and I just have a real passion for American agriculture. And uh, so, uh, you know, once I got past my own situation, I, I just felt that there was a need for uh, people to come to realize, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, especially uh, operations that weren't going to have a successor uh, going forward and realizing that uh, this this isn't going to be like it has been the last three or four generations in, in being able to just go around the corner to your neighbor and, and renting your farm. It's going to become more and more difficult all the time. And that difficulty, Glenn, I mean, we see that with the change in technology. Some growers are willing to make adoptions of stuff really quickly, you know, different farming practices. What sort of things do you work with landowners and growers 
to put together before you you make the match? What factors go well, into consideration? Well, for, first and foremost, of course, is their financial capabilities. And one of the questions that we have uh, on our website, which which has a profile for both uh, producers and for um, uh, landowners to fill out, uh, one of the provisions or one of the questions is, do you have a, a succession plan? And uh, that, that turns out to be an important factor because we're in Century Match trying to match up uh, a landowner and a producer that's going to be there for a number of years. And, and the criteria of, of having a succession plan or some sort of idea of how your future operation was going to go forward um, was, was one of the important factors. <clears throat> so um, that was one of the, the factors. Um, uh, also, their ability to deal with conservation uh, plans, uh, you know, uh, all of the government programs require that kind of attention, and that certainly uh, entered into the uh, picture also. So, Glenn, I guess my next question would be, how many growers have you worked with? How many folks have been through the succession process so far working with Next Generation Ag Partners? Well, you have to understand, we're a brand new company. We started uh, uh, back in the middle of the year last year, and uh, we are just coming onto the scene. Uh, we have several that we've been working with that we have uh, 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 working with us right now, and uh, we're, we're trying to get our story out and trying to get people to understand what we're all about. Glenn, do you see any or foresee any issues with, obviously, uh the turbulent economic times we've had in farm country and maybe potentially the economy is slowing down. Do you see any issues or hurdles to face here as folks maybe don't want to come back and having these farmers that sign up and, and want to pre create a succession plan, but maybe don't have the young farmers or other farmers to connect with. Do you ever see that being an issue? Um, I, I, the dynamics of farming are changing so quickly right now that it's virtually impossible to stay on top of it, whether you're talking about markets, whether you're talking about weather. Um, looking forward, you have to understand that uh, you have to look at the big picture, and hopefully uh, we, can, we can put some people together that are going to be able to handle all of the changing dynamics that we see almost every day anymore. Right. And these things are just going to continue to change. The pace of change is going to continue to accelerate. Glenn, before we let you go, for listeners who are maybe in your shoes, the shoes you were in as you were confronting this change, how should they go about getting in touch with you guys? What's the best first step to make while they're kind of grappling with the unknowns? Well, the, the very best uh, way to get a hold of us is through our website, uh, NextGenEgg. Uh, dot us. Um, it's it's the very best way. We have profiles for both uh, operators and for uh, uh, owners, and those profiles get submitted to us uh, completely confidentially, and we f we file those. And when when the time comes that we need to contact uh, each each individual, we do that. And that is by far the very best way for you to get in contact with us. 
Um, if there's any uh, urgency that needs to be um, addressed, that can be uh, submitted on the uh, profile also. Awesome. Glenn, well, thank you so much for sharing your story because we know succession planning is not an easy issue to discuss. Well, it's uh, imperative that people look far enough ahead to understand what's uh, unfolding here, and hopefully uh, they'll pay attention and maybe give uh, NextGen a chance. for taking the time to talk to us growers it's never too early to start thinking about succession planning whether it's going to be within your family or outside the family or you know it's still just up in the air while we're finally getting into the fields this spring let's put our thinking on the thing hey what if the worst case should happen how keep those folks in mind oh with that madison Honkamp, what do you say should we let the people go let's let them go 